it's raining pretty good out there. But uh, thank you guys for coming, and thank you guys that are online. Uh, we're in the 10th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, and we, we come here in this chapter of a crossroad or a bridge that links backwards and forwards to the kindness that Jonathan has shown Mephibosheth in chapter 9 and this battle with the Ammonite, this war that they're about to have. And uh, we're going to see that the war is not going to be David's problem. David's problem is going to be with not keeping his flesh in check. There's a, there's a chink that's been in his armor for a while. And uh, David, because he showed kindness to Mephibosheth, and he's going, he's going to do the same thing with Hanan, but it's not going to get the same consequences. The Bible, Jesus told us, be as wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. And that's all we can do and let the outcome fall out the way it is. But verse one, verse, the verse one of chapter uh, 10 tells us this. It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Remember, King Saul's first victory was over Nahash the Ammonite. Saul was plowing in his field. The children of Israel begins to cry. He wonders what happens when they tell him. He, he chops his uh, wagon down, and he takes the oxen, and he slaughters them. And Saul, the Spirit of God, the Bible said, came upon him, and he went and defeated the Ammonites there. David, as he began to flee from Saul, what David did, he began to befriend some of the Ammonites and the Ammonites' king and the Ammonites' rulers. And so that's how David became friendly with the Ammonites. They thought David would turn his back on Israel and on Saul, but he does not do that. And remember, like the Moabites, the Ammonites were descendants from Lot with the children of Israel. So you have that dynamic going on here. But now, I think what David was trying to do, he knew sooner or later he was coming to the throne. He would be the king of Israel. So he's really networking, trying to make these leagues, trying to make these friendships together so that when he comes to the throne, he will have friends also around him, but it does not turn out that way. And when it says he went to show kindness to Hanan's son because of the king there, that stirs up the image of he wanted to make a covenant. He wanted to make a treaty with them, but they don't go for it. It says in verse 2, then David said, I will show kindness. Once again, Hesed, a covenant relationship to Hanan, the son of Nahash as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And it seems by what the scripture says, it's genuine. That's what he's really trying to do. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceable with all men. That's what David was trying to do. And David's servants came into the land. He sends this delegation with them of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? 
reminds me of Rehoboam, the young man, that Rehoboam and the older man, they really messed Rehoboam up because he took the advice of the younger men. And so you have to be wise. You have to seek the Lord. Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Unfounded suspicion really shows what your heart is like. Because David is resting in the Lord. And we're going to find out that Hanan, the reason he has these unfounded suspicions of David, even though he's trying to show him kindness, he does not have that peace of God. And so he's always thinking people are against him. It blows him away that someone will show him the kindness of God. And we need to understand as believers in Jesus Christ, if you're going to err one way or the other, are you going to show kindness, show love, or raise that jaundice eye of look of suspicion when people just show you a kind deed? You should always err on the side of kindness. I think it's one of the uh, points when it speaks in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul is talking about this is love, joy, kindness, meekness. And, it's, and he goes on to say, love never thinks wrongly of people. So we always should give people the benefit of the doubt. And Hanan, he doesn't do this. Verse 4 tells us, therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, and they shamed them. When they, because in that culture, if you had a beard, it showed your masculinity, it showed your honor, all of those things. Matter of fact, all of the slaves, they did not have beards. So it was a disgrace. And that's what they do here. You would make an oath by your beard. So, hey, I envy those guys with those big beards. I wish I could grow one. I would have been a slave just by not being able to grow a beard. (laughs) But my point is they valued their beards so much that they would swear by them. Hanan, knowing this, his men knowing this, he cuts off their beards. And then it says, he cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. And these were royal garments that they were wearing. A delegation comes by and they might as well spit in David's eye here. And what it was, it was a declaration of war when they did that. And David knew it. That's why he reacts the way he does. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king says, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. He didn't want to embarrass them any farther. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves, the King James says, a stench to David. The new King James says, repulsive to him. And maybe they're thinking, we blew it. We made a mistake. But they don't repent here. They add to their mistake. It says, and they go and hire people. The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, really the Arameans here, 20,000 foot soldiers. And from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men. And from Ishtab, 12,000 men. You know, to have committed such brazen act. You would think these guys were tough guys, but it seems like they're very cowardly. 
because they won't even go to war and fight on their behalf. They hire people to do that. Now, when David heard of it, he sent Joab, this is his chief general, and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array formation and the, at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth, Rahab, Ishtab, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him, against him before and behind, so Joab, he's facing these armies. The Syrians are coming from the north. And the Ammonites are coming from the south. And he says, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. You have to understand that Joab is a warrior and his brothers are warriors. Joab, I don't know, I'm dating myself, but I used to watch a movie. Well, it was a sitcom called the... Gosh, what was that sitcom with J.R. Dallas? <laughs> well, Joab is the Dallas kind of guy. He undercuts everyone. He, anytime he get, has a chance to get over on someone, he does it, but he's still a tough warrior. That's why he's the leader of uh, David's armies. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, Abishai, then I will come and help you. And then he says something that's out of the way for Joab. He says, be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Joab speaks this words of wisdom. It was almost like the high priest who prophesied, the ungodly high priest who prophesied over, about Jesus. But he says something that's so important here. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. If only we would continuously live like that. Lord, I might not like the way this is, has shaken out or how this is going, but you know what's best for me. And so I'm going to submit and I'm going to surrender to it and allow your will to be done. Joab should have took his own advice there. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. These guys flee and they have been hired to fight. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city because this battle, what David and his men will do, they will set up a blockade around the city and they will start, begin to starve them until they come out. And that's why they're going into the city. First Chronicles tells us that they had paid, Hanan had paid the Arameans a thousand silver talents to go to war with them. And so they're fleeing with the money also. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. Verse 15, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer uh, sent and brought, out to the Syri- and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. Speaking of the river Euphrates, they had taken that much territory. And they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel. So David was not with them at the beginning. That's going to be very important. 
he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Hillam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. David usually goes with his military, with his army to war. He sends Joab this time, and Joab comes back with an incomplete victory. Every time Joab goes to battle, or any time David does not go to war with his army, they never have a complete victory. And God is giving David a visual aid for what's going to happen in chapter 11. They, they put that blockade around the city, and they're just waiting to starve them out. And, and this is probably fall going into the winter, and they did not go to battle in winter. They would say, okay, you guys, we'll wait till the winter is over with. We'll wait till spring comes, and we will start again. So it's a ceasefire that's hap- that usually happens. The latter part of verse 17 says, when it was told David... He gathered all Israel, verse 18. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. This is the most impressive battle that David has had because 700 chariots It's probably two men to a chariot. That's 1,400 men. He says 40,000 horsemen, every man on their horses, 41,000 people have been slain in hand-to-hand combat, the most impressive battle he's had. Joab had an incomplete battle. David goes back. He completes the battle. And it always, the Holy Spirit always tells us when David goes to war, God had preserved him. He always would take care of him. He always would take care of Israel. We know that David is a type of Jesus Christ. And Jesus always leads us into triumphal entry. He always goes before us when he sends us into a battle, and we can have complete confidence that we will be victors in that battle because he's leading us. 2 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, Now thanks be to God who always leads us, in triumph in Christ. Once again, this is a visual aid because David is going to be slack and he's not going to do what he knows he should do because it's going to say in chapter 11, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. So Joab returns with this incomplete battle. Verse 19 tells us, and when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. You don't have to worry about these Syrians anymore. 65,000 square miles of territory David has conquered, has had had a conquest over now. And that's still not the limits. That's the farthest the kingdom. When Solomon comes, He will stretch that kingdom out a little farther, but they never take all of the land the Lord has given them. Anytime we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to lead us and allow him to fight our battles, we will always be victorious. Romans 13, 14 tells us, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. 
It's when we begin to let our guard down, you guys. When we begin to slip in our word or in prayer and fellowshipping with the brethren, that's when we begin to become lax in the things of the Lord. And that's when, if we're not careful, we will allow something or someone else on the throne of our hearts. And we cannot have complete victory when we do that. Chapter 11. We've all heard the saying, all good things must come to an end, especially in this world. When David makes this sin, when he errs and sins the way he does with Bathsheba, it's going to flip everything upside down. All of the blessings that the Lord was lavishing on David comes to a crashing halt when he sins like, like he does in both ways, not only the adultery, but also killing Uriah the Hittite. And that's the narrative I want us to see. When David sins, it's almost like it ranks with the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's how much of a dramatic effect happens, not only to David, not only to his family, but the entire nation of Israel. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. Uh, The way of the transgressor, the scripture tells us, is hard. And what God is doing, we will see God will do just about any and everything he can. But still, man has free will. And we will see how God is trying to block David in. He's been trying to do that when David began to accumulate more than one wives. And even here in chapter 11, we will see roadblocks. And David will jump after over one hurl after another. But all that shows us is the love of God that he has for David. We know David will repent after this gross sin. It says in Psalms 51, 16, for you do not desire sacrifice, David will write, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings because in the law, the sin of adultery and murder, there was no sacrifices you could bring. It was the death penalty. David says in verse 17 of Psalms 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David, after God continues to put his thumb on him more and more, he finally breaks David. And David will fall on something he should have fallen on very early. And that's the grace of God. It's there for him. David will never be the king. He will never be the father. He will never be the leader that God wanted him to be. But after this brokenness, that's when he writes his best psalms. That's when he draws closest to the Lord that he's ever been. He signs off once again, not as the king of Israel, but the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he's going to learn. I said last Wednesday that what David did with Mephibosheth to me was the greatest act of grace in the scriptures. But as I read this, of intentional sin, of intentional rebellion, God had every right to turn his back. But that's not the God we serve. He's full of grace. 
I'm reminded once again of Moses when he says, Lord, show me your glory. And so God says, okay, I'll do this for you. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and all my afterglow will come past you. And it blows me away. The first thing that Yahweh said, I'm long suffering, slow to anger. And boy, we need that. We need that as believers in Jesus Christ. And we'll find that out. Verse one tells us, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, the Holy Spirit puts it, emphasizes it right there, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. David is sending while he should be going. God, once again, has given him this visual aid that if you want to win these battles, you need to lead the troops, but he doesn't do that. Jesus always, in battles that he has caused us to fight, he leads us. It tells us this, then it happened, and I wonder had, had this been brewing one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 tells us, but each one, everyone is the same. No one is neglected in this. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So David is on his roof, walking on it, and he sees a woman, a woman bathing, the scripture says, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And as I pondered this, because I ponder some things, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if he's walking on his roof and he glanced and, and he saw Bathsheba. If he would have turned away and, and went back into his house, I don't think he would have known so much that she was beautiful. But in order for him to know that she was beautiful, he had a second look and a third look. And as I go through this text, people ask, was Bathsheba at fault? But the Bible, God says nothing that she was, so she wasn't. The Bible doesn't give her any blame that she did anything wrong. But there is a lesson that we can learn from Bathsheba. We have to understand that beauty is a gift from God. And we must use that beauty. Women must use that beauty to glorify and honor God. And when they are married, then they honor their husband. Remember when God brought, I believe it was Jesus Christ who is God, brought Eve to Adam. And he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They should reveal and show their beauty to their husband. But sin now has entered the world, and everything is twisted. And women, when they think they're beautiful, especially unbelievers, they like to flaunt and show their beauty. And Peter says, no, the Holy Spirit says, no, it shouldn't be that way. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4 tells us, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, 
arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So let's remember that. That can be women or men. We have to be careful of those things. So it says, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, right at that moment, Paul said, you should begin to pray. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. No doubt Paul is right, but I like even better what Joseph did. Right in where the temptation come, it's right in your face. What did Joseph do? He fled. And I'm sure while he was fleeing, he was praying. That's always the best thing to do when temptation hits you right in the face. It's nothing you can do. You don't believe me. Standing there and praying is not going to help that much. But running and praying, that's the key. That's what we all should do. Whether it's a computer screen, whether it's on your phone, whatever it is, we need to get rid of it and allow the Lord. That's when he knows you're for real. That's when he will bring freedom. And so we should be, take heed to those things. Verse 3, but David did not do that. He had began to allow that sin to inflame him and entice him. So David sent and inquired about the woman. David saw, then he sent, and we will find out that he will take. We all have heard this proverb, and it's going to be very important. Lord Acton, he said this, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The reason I say that, if David would have been that a grown man, a little shepherd boy at this time, I don't think he would have did that. It, the, the temptation wouldn't have been so strong. And the reason why, he's the king. So he gets what he wants. Remember when uh, they first told Samuel, Samuel, thank you for what you've done, but we want a king. And it grieves Samuel. And Samuel goes to the Lord, and and they haven't offended you, Samuel. They've offended me. And Samuel goes back, and he begins to tell them, you wanted a king? Let me tell you what your king is going to do. He's going to take your best men. He's going to take your best women. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your best fields. He's going to take everything that he wants. David has arrived at this stage. And it's because he's king, he feels as if he's bulletproof. It's because the politicians rule and they think they're above everyone else. I can get away with this. I can get away with that. And they might get away with it on this earth. But if they don't come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they won't get away with it in the end. So David, that's his mindset at this time. And someone said, and I know that the people in the palace, the servants, the guards, they gossip, they talk all the time. Because watch what this is. And someone said, 
Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men? And Eliam or Iliad, it tells us in Chronicles, is the son of Ahithophel, who is one of David's main counselors, one of David's main friend, best buddy. Uh, It said, we went into the house of the Lord together. We worshiped together. And Ahithophel will never forgive David for what he does here. Then David sent messengers and took her. And that word took is there for a reason. And And she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity, her monthly cycle, and she returned to her house. And I believe the reason the Holy Spirit wants us to know that she was bathing is because when this baby comes, there's there's not going to be any doubt who it belongs to. David is driven by lust. He's trampled over the law of God, and he's cast it behind him, all because of his passion that he did not keep in check. And you want to know how this happened? It happens one step after another. It, it never happens overnight. It slowly, it slowly takes, it goes in increments. One and then another step and then another step. It started when he began to take Abigail and, and he knew him in the third chapter. It continued when he had a couple of victories, and it said he amasses more wives. It's okay. But God, Jesus Christ, told us, one man for one woman until death do us part. That's his best. That's the best way. But David doesn't do this to his own demise. He says, I can handle it. It'll be okay with me. And it's not going to be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There was a chink in his armor, a weakness that he never put to death. He played with it. He played with it. He played with it. And he finally gets burned. One proverb says, can a man take coal into his bosom and not be burned? Can a a man walk on fiery coals and not be scorched? It can't happen. Romans 13, 14 says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. It's a discipline. It's a discipline. I should have wrote this down. I forgot the verse so you guys can help me out. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look upon a young maiden to lust thereupon. That's sound advice, not only for men, but for women. That's sound advice. And we should not do that for the first 10 years of our walk with the Lord, 15 years, 20 years of our walk with the Lord, because we're going to find out David is 50 at this time. So we, as long as we have these bodies, we must be disciplined and put this flesh down. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. These are the only words that we hear from Bathsheba. 
David begins to connive. David begins to scheme. David begins to think, okay, what can I do to handle this? It, it never occurred to him, I guess, I should repent. But he does not do that. David, I'm sure pride rose up in him. Hey, I'm the one that killed Goliath. I'm the one that they sang about. Saul killed his thousand. David killed his tens of thousands. I am the one who brought the ark back, dancing and worshiping. What will people think of me? And so all of this is twirling in his mind, and I'm sure one of the greatest things that was twirling in his mind, there's no offering that I can bring. This is the death penalty. This is the death penalty for me. This is the death penalty for Bathsheba. What am I going to do? All he had to do is fall into the grace of God. I love the gospel of Luke. Three times in the first five chapters of the gospel of Luke, Jesus defends the goodness of God. My father is good. My father is good. He's nothing but good. And that's what he should have thought of. This is, and we're about to see what the goodness of God looks like. We have to understand no matter how bad we have failed, no matter how bad or how much we have dropped the ball, whether we miss the mark, whether we are crooked or bent, whether we transgress, there's always forgiveness. Because the enemy wants you to think you've blown it this time. God is through with you this time. He's not going to take you back this time. But there's always forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 tells us, come now and let us reason together. Let's talk about this thing. Let's add this thing up. I want you to see, PV, that one plus one is two. I want you to see that when you sin, I'm here to forgive you if you ask and repent genuinely. That's how it adds up. That's what that word reason means. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be as wool. But David thinks he has an entitlement. He's entitled to this. I'm the king. I can do what I please, and there will be no repercussions, or I can work my way out of this, and God is going to have to break him. Verse 6, then David sent to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So the plan is beginning to be in motion. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked, check this small talk out. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, and here's the hook, here's the bait on that hook. Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. He's working. He's working his way big time, hoping Uriah would receive this food and go into his wife because he's been gone for a while. And of course, we have to understand by now, Bathsheba knows what the plot is. She knows what's going on, so I'm sure she's looking good at the door. But Joab, not Joab, 
But Uriah is a man of a different character. He loves the Lord. And he's not going to let, allow his flesh to overcome him. And it says in verse 9, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So David has a great problem because Uriah is an honorable man. And what an act of self-denial. Denial. Once again, Paul says, I beat my body and keep it in check. I'm going to read all of this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. It's an admonishment. It's, there's exhortations there, and we need to heed them. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, moderate in all things. Now, they do, not, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown crown that we can cast at the feet of Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of this, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Oh, if I could only discipline my body the way I try to discipline my flesh. Hey, I want to go work out. I want to do this. I want to ride my bike. Oh, if I would be in the scriptures like I try to work out sometimes. He says, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. It pays to walk in discipline, not in legalism. Because the enemy will say, oh, you, you don't want to be legalistic. Why do you read your word every morning? Why do you think you have to pray every day? You can miss a day. You can miss two days. Yeah, you can. But I know me. And so I must discipline my body. So when they told, verse 10, so when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, Notice what keeps him first, the ark, the presence of the Lord. Lord. The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. God is humbling David little by little because he won't allow him to do it at once, but he's humbling him. Because if you remember when Saul was chasing David, David says the same thing. Why are you chasing me? His man says, here he is in the cave. Kill him. And David says, as the Lord lives, I will not do this. I'm better than this. My concern is my walk with the Lord, so I'm not going to do this. And now he's wanting Uriah to fall to this. And remember, when the men of Israel will go to war, they would do this uh, ceremonial washing, and then they would abstain from sexual relationships with their wives. David knows this, but yet 
he wants Uriah to do this. Uriah's name means Jehovah is my light, and he's living up to that name. So this doesn't work. So David says, I'm not going to give up. I can't give up. I don't want to repent of my sins. I'm going to go to plan B. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David was hoping now that I've got alcohol in him, because usually what's in you, you become brave when you're drunk and everything that you want to say and everything that you want to do, you're inebriated to enough, enough, and that flesh has been tingled and tantalized enough that you run through all of the stop signs of the Lord. But Joab, once again, he proves he's a godly soldier. He proves he, he's a man that loves the Lord, and he, he's not going to do this. So David right now is truly in a pickle. I bet he tossed and he turned all night. His hope, I believe David's hope at this moment is gone, and that's when he goes to plan C. He's about to, okay, I gave you an opportunity. You don't want to do it this way. I'm going to do it another way. He lost hope. And remember what Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says about hope. And I like how the King James says it. Hope maketh not ashamed. Because when you have hope, you can go through things. You can still trust. You're still trusting. You're still depending on the Lord. No matter how many dark clouds may arise, I'm hoping in the Lord. But when you lose hope, you're off the grid. You'll do anything. So verse 14 tells us, in the morning, I'm sure he didn't sleep well, because he's scheming, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in it, wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And we've seen previously David's power. He's the king So he can do anything he wants. Joab is going to hurriedly and speedily do what he says. When Joab gets this letter, and this is my opinion, I believe he smiles, gives one of those devilish smiles like, I finally got him. I finally got the so-called great king who loves the Lord. I've got him where I want him. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 39, David says this. After Joab has slayed Abner, am I, am I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to, according to his wickedness. When Joab, we know the account, slain Abner, David calls him back, and that's his nephew, and he makes him grovel in front of the processional, uh, the funeral procession. 
right at the casket, the entire funeral. He makes Joab do this because at that moment, David was walking. He was an honorable man. He says, I would never do anything like this. So when Joab gets this letter, and probably they have heard from the slaves in the palace, probably the word has come all the way back now to the army. And Joab says, hey, I surely will do it. And by the way, David, I can't wait to sit down face to face and see you again. You will never be able to lord over me your righteousness and your holiness I'm so holy I made you do this. I'm so holy I made you do that. You will never be able to say that again, David. I've got you where I want you. We have to understand all of those things are in place when we do something like this. And that's what happens, and he's glad to do it. I'm going to stop right here because as I was reading this, and just like you guys, you've read it many of times, but I'm blown away in the next couple of verses, when, when they begin to speak about Uriah, when he sends that letter back and say, hey, go back and tell David, we, lost, we, had, a, we had a lot of casualties, but don't worry about it. Uriah is dead. That's all it says about Uriah. A godly man who did the right thing because he loves the Lord and all the press he gets is Uriah is dead. But think of everything and the rewards he will get in the kingdom when he sees his Savior face to face. That's how we should live, you guys. That's how we should live. We may never get any fanfare down here, but we have to understand that's okay. We live and die, as Job said, and Paul, by the way, unto the Lord. And all of the things that we gave up and we said, Lord, I'm going to allow you to have your way. You will bring those things to me in your time and in your seasons. If I wait on you, we will be blessed by them. Let's pray, you guys. Father, Joab was right. Whatever he does, it will be the right thing. It will be okay. Give us grace to live like that. Remind us of the great price you paid for us so that you can order and direct our lives. Whether we see and understand which way we're going or not, give us trust in a loving God to not give the enemies of God any reason to blaspheme your name by our walk and how we live, Father. And Lord, let us see, especially at the end of this chapter, let us bask in the grace and mercy of the Godhead. I'm blown away that you would say, I took my spirit away from Saul, but I will never take my spirit away from from David, not only David, but everyone who has put their trust in a loving Savior, who has repented of their sins and given their lives to Jesus Christ, because we are under a better covenant. Let us bask in that, Father, but give us grace to walk up right before you. Father, I continue to lift up 
Joanne Shabelsky. Lord, I pray that you would wrath a miracle in her life. Lord, I pray that you continue to give them grace every minute, every hour of every day. I pray that you will remind this fellowship to continue to lift her and Rick up in prayer. Lord, I pray that you will once again, as you've been doing, keep the plague of COVID away from this fellowship at large, Father. I know people may have it here and there, Lord, but let it not wreak havoc through Calvary Restore. Not only through Calvary Restore, but every church that preaches your word and teaches your word, Father. Keep us safe. Keep our families safe, Father. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.